Welcome to VMN Volume 2, Episode 6, recorded on December 7th, 2020. VMN is produced and distributed out of unceded Abenaki territory in so-called Northeastern Vermont. We seek to provide a platform for movements pushing for liberation in this area and beyond. This week's episode features a chat with Beth Foster about the Spanish Civil War, its aftermath for American volunteers, and parallels with t- with today. Welcome, Beth. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself, starting with names, pronouns, and the work you're involved in, and how did you end up researching the Spanish Civil War? Sure. Uh, my name is Beth, and my pronouns are she, they. I'm located in Kentucky and Tennessee. I am a teacher uh, for middle school and high school students, and I'm also a graduate student in American history. And I, my focus for my research is focusing on fascism in the United States and the fight against fascism. And that led me to um, writing about those who fought against uh, Franco in the Spanish Civil War and the American response to the Spanish Civil War. How did Franco rise to prominence before the Spanish Civil War? And can you talk a little bit about how the British and the King Edward had a role in enabling Franco and fascism? Um, In my understanding, um, and, and my expertise is in American history, but with the Spanish Civil War, you had a society that was really divided very clearly down the middle, um, which in so many ways reflects our current situation in the United States, I feel like. On one side, you had those who were advocating for democracy, and this was in a time when over half of Europe had embraced authoritarianism regimes of different sorts. And it wasn't just liberal democracy. You had that, but you had anarchists and socialists, and you had an uprising of workers. You have a you had a large class in Spain that was did not have land ownership and a peasant class essentially. On the other side, you had those who owned land. You had the church. You had small landowners, and these two sides were very clearly divided, and opposition was almost 50-50. In 1938, I need my paper in front of me. In 1938, I believe it was, there was an election, and those who were on the left from liberal democracy to anarchists to socialists, they formed the popular front to oppose the nationalists, which was this group of the church the elites, the landowners, in the election. And they won by just a sliver of a percentage of a vote, which, again, is so reminiscent or an echo, it seems to me, of what we are experiencing currently in the United States. They were in power for five months. It was an unwieldy democracy. There were a lot of divisions on the left. There were those who wanted to just cling to the republic and establish democracy. And there were were those who wanted a revolution. They wanted the collectivization of the means of production. Five months into it, Franco leads the coup, and Franco's nationalist forces take Morocco and a part of the northern Spanish mainland. And from there, the Spanish Civil War has started. 
With the start of the Spanish Civil War, we had Britain and many of the Western democracies that signed a non-intervention agreement. They would not intervene. The United States did not sign that agreement, but they passed a law of non-intervention in the United States. Even though they had agreed to non-intervention, it wasn't long before we have Mussolini and we have Hitler who are intervening for the nationalists. So we have this clear fascist front developing to support Franco. On the other side, we have the common turn, which was the Communist Party. While the Soviet Union had signed the non-intervention agreement, the common turn said we will be involved. And um, it wasn't long before the Soviet Union actually began to send tanks, and the common turn begins to recruit people from around the world to come and join the international brigades to fight Franco. And this was necessary because Franco was pushing toward Madrid, and it was very obvious that there weren't more people on the ground to fight. Madrid was going to fall fast. The Americans that wanted this non-intervention, was this the... America First coalition that was basically fascist later later on, or was it just a, a different uh, phenomenon? It was really a it was really divided. FDR from the beginning has um, his heart is with the Republic, uh, but he also fears this Catholic voting bloc um, in Spain. The, there had been parts of the Republican coalition that had committed atrocities against parts of the church because the church had really upheld this elitism of the landowners and the military. And so there was a lot of opposition to the Republic because of the alliances with those who had, who had committed crimes against priests, nuns, uh, monks uh, in Spain. And what we have with the civil, with the Spanish Civil War, it's so complicated. There's civil wars within civil wars and all sides committed atrocities in the names of their ideals. It was really this, uh, Catholic voting bloc, from my understanding, that FDR feared. And this was one of the first time Catholics were able to organize in the United States to exercise any kind of power. Can you tell me a little more about what the roots were of the Spanish Civil War, as you understand it. How does it echo back in history? It really was, in so many ways, it was a struggle between democracy, however you define that, as a socialist, a liberal, or an anarchist, against this fascist front. And there were so many people around the world who saw this, as a threat not just to Spain, not just an internal conflict to Spain, but as a precursor for something that was coming. And we see people uh, from the U.S. ambassador to Spain uh, down to those people who join the International Brigade saying, we have to stop this now. And ultimately, we know that was true. It was, you know, Hitler practiced in Spain uh, for what would happen in World War II. But um, what we saw was the world democracies being silent, and we saw the world democracies not intervening until it was too late for Spain and until it was too late to stop what was coming with World War II. What sources did you delve into in, in order to begin your research? 
Um, a lot of great books. Uh, one of the best books that I have found is uh, Peter Carroll's The Odyssey of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. Use that a lot. Um, also, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade has their archives that are online, and those were phenomenal. There's also a great book called Our Fight uh, that is the writings of some of the brigade members, and that had a lot of information in it about why the Americans who went to Spain to fight, why they went, and what the government's response was to them when they went, when they came home, and throughout their lives. Were you able to talk to any uh, survivors? No, I think, uh, from what I understand, all of the Abraham Lincoln veterans have now passed. Uh, I think the last one passed a couple years ago, so I haven't actually gotten to talk to any of the survivors. Most people on the left have heard of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. Can you tell us about some of the less well-known Spanish Civil War brigades that fought on the side of the Republic? One of the brigades that I learned about was the Seiko and Vanzetti Centura. And that's basically all I know at that at this point. Um, they were a group of anarchists who went to fight outside of the Coleman Turns International Brigades that were organized. My next research is going to be into the Seiko and Vanzetti Centura because so little. I mean, I, I had found, I had never heard of them until I came across a sentence as I was researching this paper. But I'm fascinated to learn more and, and wonder why we don't have more information about them. It was only a hundred people, but it was a hundred people. What about the law of forgetting? Does this, is this getting in the way of, of your research? The, the law of historical memory that, where Spain decided we're just going to forget about this, not teach about it. What can you say about that? How does this affect your research? In many ways, I feel like there was an unspoken law that was similar in America uh, regarding the international, the, the Abraham Lincoln brigades and the Americans who went to fight. I never learned about the international brigades in elementary school, high school, college. Um, it was being involved in leftist politics that I first learned about the Abraham Lincoln Brigades. And I think there was probably an intentional effort. Um, the United States was so focused on stomping out communism during this period that they literally embraced fascism. They embraced Franco. And the brigade story, it's hard not to see the brigade and those who went and fought in, in a, a light of a hero. They were people who left home and went to a foreign country to fight for ideals of democracy. No matter how you feel about their communist leanings, and not all of them were communists, about 75% were, they were people who went and fought for ideals. At the same time, you have the corporations in, the, in America who are selling goods to fascists for profit. And those people were never persecuted by the U.S. government. On the flip side, we have these people who went and fought for ideals who are persecuted throughout their lives for making it what I would say there's no disputing it was with noble intention. I don't know if it's because there's no way to tell that story without seeing that there was something noble about it, but in many ways it's been completely erased from American memory. In 2001, 2000, 2001, in New Hampshire there was an effort to put a plaque up in the New Hampshire State House to honor 
uh, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade veterans. Apparently there's statues, memorials, plaques to everybody, even people who never stepped foot in New Hampshire in the state house. And there were several Abraham Lincoln Brigade members who left from New Hampshire. And that was shut down. I think the plaque stayed up two hours. Newspapers screamed communists in the state house. There were Catholic groups that were leading opposition to this plaque being placed. So even all of this time later, their legacy is still unclear in America, I guess. Were you able to follow any of them from through their lives after they came back from uh, from Spain? Yes. Um, actually, Peter Carroll in the book, um, The Odyssey of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, he does a great job of following several of the veterans. One story in particular that just, I mean, there were so many stories of the persecution they endured at the hands of the American government on their return. One in particular I remember is there was an anti-fascist refugee committee that was providing assistance to refugees in Spain. You know, Franco killed hundreds of thousands of people and imprisoned them, political opponents. And this committee was providing assistance to the refugees. And the House Committee on Un-American Activities took some of the um, members of the refugee committee, brought them before them, and demanded the names of their donors and the recipients of those donations. The committee refused on the basis that it was unconstitutional, that they did not have to provide this information, and on the grounds that providing this information would endanger the lives of people in Spain who are receiving their assistance. And they were held on contempt charges, imprisoned for five months, and on their release, one of the men was a doctor who had served in the medical bureau in Spain, and he found that his medical license had been suspended. He appeals all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court upholds the suspension with one judge dissenting. And I can't remember which judge it was off the top of my head, but, you know, the judge says in the dissent, when an American doctor can't save lives in America because of opposition to Franco in Spain, there's a neurosis that we have to develop. And that neurosis was America's obsession with communism and the willingness to embrace any kind of evil in an effort to stomp it out. We see that today. Do you think that the people who scream communism till they're blue in the face are doing this in good faith, or do you think it's a bad faith effort? I think that communism threatens capitalism, whereas fascism doesn't. And capitalism is the god of America. And as long as that's true, America's always at risk of embracing fascism over any other ideology that threatens profits. What parallels do you see with what's the rise of fascism in the 30s and what is happening in the in the United States and the rest of the world? You know, I, I was really, really, really fearful as we waited to see what was going to happen with the presidential election. And status quo being what it is and not a good thing, but certainly preferable to the full-blown fascism that we are threatened with under Donald Trump's regime. I think a lot of people, even those who would say the status quo is, is not good, we all breathed a bit of a sigh of relief as uh, Biden won the election and as it looks like he's going to be allowed to take office. But the one thing I keep thinking about is 
when the popular front won the election and they won by that sliver and there was a sigh of relief. You know, there had to have been a sigh of relief. Like we dodged the bullet. The fascists didn't get elected. And what I would say is that we need to remember it wasn't until five months after they took power that the real disaster came. That was when the fascist coup happened. I would just caution all of us to not breathe too deeply into that side of relief yet. If we look at it as a parallel, we're not to the point yet where we can really breathe that sigh of relief and say, okay, we've reestablished the status quo. Now we can fight for these things that we need. You know, we can fight. Uh, we don't, we no longer just have to be focused on defeating fascism. We can move forward in other fights because it feels like to me for the past four years, any other fights that we might have been able to have, the fight for health care, the fight for you know, all of these different things, those have been put on hold because we have literally been holding back the tide of fascism. I don't know that we've dodged the bullet yet, just looking at the correlations. On November 14th, there was the Millions for MAGA uh, march in D.C. Just days earlier, Democrats were celebrating in the streets that Trump had been defeated, and then the fascists, the Proud Boys in this case, stabbed three people and injured many others. Thoughts on that? To me, and I'm I'm moving outside any area of expertise I have, to me that feels more like Germany and what we saw before Hitler came to power with the fascist street fighting and those who supported democracy, you know, just the constant clashes between them. I, that, that's what I'm always left remembering is, is that fight um, in Germany before, in those few years before Hitler came to power, the constant street fights between the fascists and those who hoped to dodge that fascist bullet. I just wanted to talk a little bit to you about the brigade when they came home, the International Brigade, because, of mm-hmm. course, we leave the Spanish Civil War and World War One and World War Two starts. Um Hitler invades Poland like six months later, is that right? Yeah. 1939, yes. There was some different opinions uh, within the International Brigade veterans about whether to enter into World War II to fight or not. In the end, uh, nearly 500 of them did enlist, but they were, their participation as soldiers was not welcomed. They were seen as subversive. They were excluded from combat duty, guard duty. Uh, they were at times arrested and held as uh, political threats, and and they were labeled as premature anti-fascists. There's some debate among the historians as to whether they were labeled this way or not, though I think it's pretty clear they were. And it just reminds me that throughout history, since the rise of fascism, the U.S. government has seen anti-fascism as a threat. You know, they've turned the police on anti-fascists over and over and over, from the Madison Square Gardens incident where the fascists had their party while Hitler was building concentration camps and they turned the police on anti-fascists all the way up until now with Antifa being, you know, such a threat to Donald Trump. And I I think we have to ask our question. The question is, why is anti-fascism from the 1930s forward such a threat to the U.S. government? Well, I believe Hitler uh, modeled uh, much of his uh, genocidal policies off of the way the United States treated 
uh, Native Americans. Mm-hmm. Another thing that's really cool about the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, the Amer- and I should say that there was no true Abraham Lincoln Brigade. That was the name that came to collectively refer to the American fighters who answered the common turns call and fought in the international brigades in Spain. But when we say Abraham Lincoln Brigade, it is those American fighters who fought with the common turn brigades. The first battalion in U.S. history to be fully integrated was an international brigade in Spain, fully racially integrated. The first American battalion to be led by an African-American was in Spain in the Spanish Civil War. Many historians would say that the first soldiers to fight in World War II were the Americans who went to Spain to fight, if we look at World War II as a global struggle against fascism. So when we think about the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, and it's a, it's another area I want to spend some time learning more about, as we look at the government persecution of them, I'm wondering how much of it was also associated with Jim Crow laws of the time, and the brigade's refusal to engage in white supremacy and refusal to engage in the segregation that was demanded in the society at that time. Do you think there's parallels between how soldiers who fought in Rojava were treated with the Abraham Lincoln brigades, with the international brigades? You know, I don't feel like I know enough to comment on that. I need to learn more about Rojava and what has happened there but I don't feel like I have enough information to really respond. Understood. I I know one of the people who returned from Rojava, um, his name was released in one one of that big government uh, and law enforcement leak, Blue Leaks. His name is through that. that, Where they uh, were monitoring him? Yes, they, they, they monitored him. His name is in as going to uh, just northeastern Syria to fight the uh, ISIS. One thing that's interesting about that, and it is a correlation with the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, when the brigade come home, um, the largest contingency returned to New York. The police were waiting on them. They seized their passports. They were arrested, questioned, interrogated, called before committees their entire lives. They technically broke no law. Uh, American law says you can fight for a foreign army as long as that army, uh, you can fight for a foreign government as long as that government is not at war with the United States. But in, in the Spanish Civil War in particular, the brigade members, the volunteers didn't break the law, but the corporations did. Texaco in particular was extending credit to Franco, which was illegal under non-intervention laws. Texaco, and Texaco's just one example, there were many. Texaco was shipping oil to Franco on its own tankers, even though the law said that anything sold to governments at war could not be shipped on American ships. But the government never did anything to Texaco. They literally had an intelligence officer embedded with the people who had left America to fight fascism, monitoring their ever move and would monitor their ever move for the rest of their lives. While Texaco goes on to be a good trillion billion dollar industry with no repercussions whatsoever for breaking U.S. law and supporting fascists. Did you find any of the veterans that had decent lives after coming back or were they just hounded from the 30s to their death? 
Peter Carroll writes about how some of the veterans came home and they just kind of disappeared. They let themselves be absorbed back into society. You know, they just had enough. And the stories that are recorded that I have come across so far are really those veterans who remained politically active and who, at the time that the United States was normalizing relations with Franco, which was, again, an embracing of fascism in its fight against communism, they Franco had been isolated from from the world after the Spanish Civil War. Uh, we go into World War II, Spain remains neutral. After World War II, of course, we have the Soviet Union, who is no longer an ally, and the United States at each other with the Cold War. The United States needed a place for military bases, and Spain was ideal for this in fighting the Cold War. So the, the America begins to court Franco, and uh, they normalize relations with Franco. They help bring Franco back into the U.N., at Franco's death, Richard Nixon says he was a great friend and ally to America. At the same time this is happening, the brigade veterans are still protesting Franco. They're still going to the Spanish consulate and demanding he be tried for war crimes for the hundreds of thousands of people he murdered and imprisoned. So while the U.S. government is courting the fascists, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade is still fighting them. This might be a little bit before your time, but whatever I think of uh, General Francisco Franco, I think of the 1975 Saturday Night Live skit, which says, and in today's news, uh, General Francisco Franco is still dead. So there was some <laughs> hatred towards this fascistic dictator in the United States. That's my childhood. Yeah, and at the time of the war, it really divided America. There were lots of Americans who were pushing for aid for the Republic. And even FDR, F, there's, there was a great book that I read working on this, and I can send you the title of it. It's not, I'm not remembering it off the top of my head. FDR literally breaks his own laws secretly to smuggle, to try to smuggle aid to the Republic. Because and, and until his death, he is haunted by guilt for the non-intervention, believing that they should have intervened for the democratically elected republic. And, and when you put it into the into reality, you had a Mussolini Hitler-backed coup of a democratically elected government, and in many ways, the U.S. supported the dictator and not the democratically elected government. And not just the United States, Western democracy. It's a story that kept on being repeated again and again. Iran, the, the U.S. and British uh, conspired to overthrow Mossadegh and install this fascistic uh, Shah of Iran, um, 19, September 11th, 1973, with Allende in Chile. It's a sad story we see again and again. And it's what makes us fight as anti-fascist. That being said, I'm going to read us out. Thank you for listening. This was VMN, Volume 2, Episode 6, recorded on December 6, 2020.